I got to tell you, as we were heading in the car, Jessica, my daughter, said, Mom, I really like it when you preach and you do a kid's message. So, kids, another week, I promise. It'll be fun. All right. Well, they get to go and they get to do a kid-sized version of the same story, I think, as far as I know. And um, you hopefully get the adult-sized version. Um, But my name is Michelle Knight, like James said, and it is my honor and my privilege to be with you each here in this place. We have just enjoyed um, the friendship and the love that you have extended to us. Wow, that's a nice big sound. Um, You know, when James and Danny and Aaron get to stand up here, they get to say, I'm James and I'm the pastor here. And um, me, I get to say, hi, I'm Michelle. I'm a mom in this church. I have four kids who are teenagers in the youth program. Yes. Um, I'm the wife of one of the musicians here. Yeah, he plays a great guitar on Sunday morning. That's me. But most importantly this morning, I get to say I am a follower of Jesus. That is the most important relationship to me in my life. And it's from that heart that I stand this morning. I may be a little nervous. I may be a little sniffly from a cold I had this week. But I'm standing here because I'm a follower of Christ. And the passage that we're going to open today is about how each of us can have a deep and personal relationship with him. So if you're just joining us today for the first time, on Sundays we have been studying through the book of John. We started in November, long time ago, with Advent, and we talked about beginnings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. After Christmas, we started working on the next segment, and it was stories of how Jesus interacted with the people on the street. He healed. He raised the dead. He turned water into wine. He did these great and mighty things. And then a couple weeks ago, we started into the next segment. It's called Legacy, is what we titled that. Um, It is Jesus with just his disciples, just those people that he was closest to, the ones that he was most intimate with. And it's up in this room that he first off washes their feet, and then he begins to talk and to share his heart. Now, I was thinking about this, and um, a couple weeks ago, I brought my daughter to come to the ski trip for the youth. And Trish Geiling was here, and we were both standing out in the parking lot talking, and the kids were loading their stuff in the vans, and they were getting all excited. They were going on this ski trip. And suddenly I said, oh, Jessica, don't forget, brush your teeth, use your good manners, help, you know, don't take advantage of the staff that are there. And I'm turning, and Trish is saying to her kids, be good, don't fight with your siblings. I would have been saying that if I had more than one kid going. And I got to thinking about this passage. These are the same kinds of things Jesus is saying. He's giving these last-minute instructions. He's saying these are the most important things. Pay attention. Now, the passage that we're going to read starts in the upper room. Let's see if I have a picture of the upper room for you. Ooh, there. That's a picture of if you go to Jerusalem today, you will visit this room. Now, is it actually the upper room? No. It just commemorates the spot. And chances are it actually is on the spot that the upper room was. But I kind of like to have an idea of the setting, right? And I like to look at it. 
And there's one artist's picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Isn't it interesting? The picture kind of looks like the room. But as we start and we read these stories, these were actual, real places, actual, real people. It's not just a story in a book. And I want you to start and think about that setting as we're here. And we're going to now start and read our passage. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to have you stand in just a minute as we read that. It comes right out of John 15. If you have your Bible, you can use that. If you have your device, you can use that. Or you can use the words that are on the screen. Um, They all work. If you will stand in honor of God's word. And today we actually are getting Jesus' words. How special is that? Um, If we could, they would be in red in some of the old-fashioned Bibles. But these are the words of Jesus. At the end, I will say, thanks be to God, and you will say... Or no, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say... Thanks be to God. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and that brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, and I no longer call you slaves, because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of God. You can be seated. John is my favorite gospel because in it, um, Jesus uses these great I am statements, seven of them to be exact in the book of John. And in a relationship, when you're first starting out a friendship or maybe a dating or whatever, um, you kind of have these, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. You might say, I'm a type A personality. Yeah, I like things really orderly. Um, I'm a night owl. I like to stay up late. That's not me. That's my husband. Um, But we use these kind of I am statements to communicate who we are. In the book of John, Jesus has seven of them. And what I like about Jesus, he's the kind of teacher that he picks object lessons. So he says, I am the bread of life, right? That communicates. I am 
Um, what else did he say? Sorry. I am the, you guys can think of one. I'm the living water. Absolutely. Good. I'm the vine is the one today, and James beat me to the punchline. Um, he uses these various things to communicate about himself. And I like that about John. We can study John, and we can get a personal um, account from Jesus himself of who he is and what he does. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Those communicate things to the people that he's around. Now, maybe in our modern day, we might not say, hey, I am the good shepherd. That wouldn't really communicate in our day. But in his day, they understood shepherds. And it's the same with the story of the vine. You know, I kind of imagine Jesus sitting here in this uh, upper room with his disciples. He's washed their feet. They're talking. You know, James talked um, last week about the passage in the beginning of John 13, and he talked about, do not let your heart be too troubled. And Jesus unrolls that. And then the part that's between what James preached and what we're talking about today, Jesus unwraps even more about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you sort of get this feeling like suddenly Jesus is like, hmm, that's a little heady. I think I need to find a really good example. And so he might be looking around the room, and maybe he sees a piece of art or um, some vines that are um, carved into the pillars. And he says, oh, that's a good one, the vine and the branches. And he says, I am the vine. And he says, my father is the gardener, and you, the disciples, are the branches. He uses this object lesson. lesson. And so we're going to just talk briefly about that um, and just say what is he meaning and why does he use this example. Um, when Jesus stands there in that first line, he said, I am the true vine. Not only is he using it as an object lesson, he also is referring back in um, Jewish history. In Isaiah, the prophet there records that God viewed Israel as his vineyard. You can look it up if you want later, Isaiah chapter 5. It's a beautiful poem. But God looked at Israel as if they were his vineyard. He cleared the land. He planted that vineyard deep. And then he tended it and sent the rain. But in Isaiah, what's so sad is that when God went to look for good fruit in his vineyard, he found sour grapes. He looked for justice, and he found oppression. And this is the history that these Jewish men, these disciples, would be familiar with. And so when Jesus stands and he says, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am the fulfillment of what Judaism should have been. And he's saying, I am the one that all of that is fulfilled in. And so that is valuable and big to us. But then also there is just the example of the vine. So let's talk about that. Um, his example, beginning with the gardener in verse 2, Jesus says, He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they may produce even more. Now, last week my son Jeremy and I drove to Santa Maria. Actually, he drove first. I followed. We had a baseball game. And so I'm driving, and it was beautiful. It was green and lush. And uh, I don't know if you've been up there recently, but the grapevines and the grape vineyards come almost right up to the interstate, or the freeway they call it here. Sorry, that was my Tennessee coming out. Um, and I was admiring the beautiful green, and suddenly I look over at these fields, and this is what I see. Vines that look just like that. 
And I thought, huh, wow, they sure cut off everything that was on that vine. And then it got me thinking about this passage, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying about the gardener here. The gardener will um, cut off, prune all of the branches and leave it really bare because he wants it to bear the most fruit. Those gardeners know just how much to cut off to make those vines really productive. And that is what the gardener does. Now, the gardener also will remove the branches that don't bear any fruit or those that are withered. And that is an uncomfortable part of this passage, and we don't like the reality of the judgment and accountability. But we need to pause and to remember that the God, our Father, the gardener, expect to find good, expects to find good grapes on our branches. He expects us to be bearing fruit. And in this moment, Jesus is reminding the disciples that, yes, it is true, God does prune. But he does go on in verse 3 with the disciples to reassure them. They have already been pruned and purified by the message he gave them. It's similar language to the same thing he told Peter when they were washing, um, when he was washing their feet. A per- person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. Jesus is assuring these disciples that they are already pruned and purified from the words that he spoke to them and from the fact that they had believed him and were following him. Jesus then, of course, moves to himself as the true vine, and he says that the disciples, that the only way they are going to bear fruit is to remain in the vine. You can imagine, um, I think there's another picture of now a real vine. There it is. See, that looks better. (laughs) Isn't that nice? But... There is no way that that branch, if it was not connected to that vine, could ever bear fruit. Now, I mean, we think, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But this is Jesus, and this is what he's using as his example. And he's doing it on purpose. The last part of the analogy is the fruit. Now, nowhere in the passage does Jesus actually say what the fruit is. Some scholars have different ideas. Some say that it may be talking about converts, People who choose to follow Christ, men, women, children, who, um, as a result of my life, your life, followers of Christ's life, come to know Christ. It could also be that it is fruit of ethical and um, moral character. It comes like out of that passage in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Probably it's both of those things together. And ultimately, the fruit that is born on the branches of a believer's life are the direct result of the intimate relationship with the vine, the intimate knowledge of God. All right, the next slide. There should be another picture of the vine. This brings great glory to my Father. When we are bearing fruit, much fruit, it brings great glory to the Father. And that is so important as we think about this. And this is one of Jesus' last things he's telling his disciples. Now, Jesus moves on from this talking of the vine, and he begins to use that as sort of um, that example, but now he's going to move on and say some things. Ten times in this passage, he uses the word remain. 
Nine times in the passage, he uses the word love, and four times he uses the word commandments or command. Now, the word remain means to stay in the place you have been occupying. Okay, that's the good definition. But Jesus really is saying this word so many times. He wants the disciples to understand they have to stay in that relationship with him. It's not just a, oh, I'm going to sit with you, Jesus, for a little bit and then go on. It is that staying, that remaining, and he's driving it home ten times. Remain in me. The word is a present and future tense. It's not because you remained in me, disciples, you're going to do this. It is a present and a future. When you remain in me, if you remain in me, these are the things that happen. And that instruction reaches down to us even today. We are part of that future tense. But the disciples have to also realize that it is, they have to be active in the process of remaining in the vine. Um, Jesus says to them, remain in me and I will remain in you. There is this activity on both sides. The disciples have to remain in Jesus and then Jesus will remain in them. It is a give and take. It is an intimate relationship. Jesus then says, those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling them, making sure that they know it is important for them to remain in him. He then moves on in verses 9 and 10, and he talks about remaining in his love. There should be um, a couple slides. Yeah, I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. There's the word remain, and now he's tying it to love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And then there's down to the verses 14 and 15. There should be another slide for that. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. The language has suddenly gone from this example of vines and branches to something really intimate, love and relationship. And he's, he's telling them um, that he loves them. He's calling them friends and not slaves. He uses the relationship of love that he has with his father as the standard for how much he loves them. In essence, he says, guys, I've loved you just like the father loves me. And not only that, I've told you all the secrets that my father told me. We're friends because you know my secrets. Jesus then ties his love to obedience. He says, I show my love to the Father by my obedience. And then he tells them, you show me your love by the obedience that you have to my commandments. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 10 that when you obey, you remain in my love. In these verses that we just looked at on the screen, Jesus is really rewriting how the disciples view themselves. All the ministry had been about Jesus is the teacher, they are the disciples, and suddenly it is now changing, and Jesus is rewriting and saying, you are my friends. I don't call you slaves anymore, you are my friend. And the significance to remaining in Jesus' love and remaining in the relationship 
is that now the disciples' obedience will be motivated from a different place. It's no longer obedience because you have to and because you're the slave or the student. You're motivated to obedience out of love and out of relationship and that intimacy. Now, most of us don't think that obeying commandments um, is an easy thing. We think it's confining. We say, I don't want to do it. It'll be hard. You know, you all, you've all been around kids enough. I don't want to. But you have to. Um, but Jesus actually says in this passage that all these things he's telling us will lead to our joy and that our joy will overflow. Remaining, obeying, leads to a joy that overflows. And I was thinking about some of the commandments that Jesus would have given during his ministry. Some of those um, commandments might have come to the disciples' minds as they were sitting there listening. Try this one on for size. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. Luke 6. Peter says to Jesus in Matthew, how often should we forgive? Seventy times seven, says Jesus. I tell you, said Jesus in um, Matthew 6, not to worry about everyday life, what you will eat or drink or wear. In uh, John 13, he says, you should wash one another's feet, saying you should be a brilliant and wonderful servant. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Or how about the one in the passage today? Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Some of those are hard. You think about pray for those that hurt you or forgive 70 times 7. Those aren't easy. And yet Jesus says, as we obey his commands, our joy will overflow. When we're in the middle of life situations, real life, work, school, and family circumstances, these commandments seem impossible. But Jesus says in the top of that passage, remain in me. Because apart from me, you can't do anything. And I think that's the secret right there to obeying these commands that God has given us. Apart from him, we can't do anything. Remain, love, obedience. These ideas are all tied up and jumbled in this passage. Um, It's all really interwoven. It's really hard to tease out where does one start and one stop. Um, Remember, these are Jesus' last words. This is what he's wanting to give his disciples as their legacy. One of the things I've enjoyed um, about the study through John, has been this review of the theme of John every week. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And I think that this passage really addresses the last half. How do we have life in his name? It is really this passage, remain in me, love me, obey my commandments. Every week has been this pounding of this... um, theme, and this week is no different. Well, I've been a nurse for 25 years. Um, I'm an operating room nurse, to be exact, and so what I do for my paid job is I fix things. Well, or I help the surgeons fix things. 
If you have a broken bone that can't be set um, and just in a cast, you might have to come have surgery where I work. Or if you have a knee that's bothering you, you might come and get that fixed. My being a nurse for 25 years and just having that fix-it mentality, I kind of bring that value and that perspective to God's word. Sorry, it's how it works. You approach God's word and I say, all right, what can I take from God's word that will fix this situation? What kind of command, what kind of promise is there that I can start and apply? I'm a nurse. I'm kind of a let's get it done, let's do it kind of a person. Um, but sometimes when it comes to our faith, we like to know all the facts here, but it's harder to get those into the walking it out and the living it out. And so, yeah, this is a great passage. Jesus has told us about being a vine, him the vine, us the branches, bearing fruit, obeying love. How do we put it into practice? How do we make it fix where we are? I think the first place we start is with actively remaining in the vine. I know you're probably going to all check out and go, oh, no, here we go. Here's the part about you have to read your Bible and you have to pray. (laughs) Yeah, there is that. I'm sorry. Um, It's like eating your vegetables. It's good for you. We do it. Um, But... No matter what our stage of life, whether we're students, we're single, we're married, with kids, no kids, um, this is what Jesus tells us to do. And we all can choose to do this. Remember, we're active, involved in this. We can choose to remain. Now, for me, um, and Jesus doesn't really roll out this seven-point snazzy thing on this is how you abide in me or remain in me. He doesn't do that here. So we're kind of left to our own um, devices when it comes to this. But for me... Being in God's word daily, either reading it or hearing it, is really important. Um, My husband Scott has been reading through the Bible every year for 10 years. Every day, the Bible for 10 years. And what that does in his life has been amazing. Um, I've watched in our years of marriage just God change him. But, you know, just reading that Bible for that little bit of the day, it's not just something I check off the list and I go on with my life business as usual. We're called here to remain. And it's that day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute commitment. How can I be inviting Christ into my situation? How can I be bringing him into the circumstances? How do I connect myself to him in ways that give life? I just can't check the task off my list. And I have to invite him into the places where I'm angry and hurt Um, stressful situations. It's that conscious choice to not rush through life without giving space to God every day to speak and move. I think it's interesting that Jesus did not pick the analogy of a gas station or a fast food restaurant. We're not just to rush in, fill up, rush, rush in, gobble down, and run off to what's going on. It is the vine with branches. It is a continual remaining The closeness and the connectedness of actually being in the vine, that's what our walk with God should be looking like. I think the other place to apply this passage is in the obedience to his commands. Where we are in life and the circumstances we face may make some of the commands seem impossible. And sometimes that nursing attitude of let's just start and apply it, sometimes as you take that first step in obedience even though it feels impossible, that's when God steps in and can enable you 
to carry out the things he's asked you to do. Jesus says in this passage that we have been appointed to bear and produce lasting fruit, much fruit. By remaining in Christ, we will have the ability to do just that. Jesus' final word in this passage is to love each other. It's the commandment that's in this passage. And that may be the hardest commandment of all. Sometimes in families or churches, when we're actually in each other's lives, it's easy to get hurt or to be offended. Maybe a parent got divorced. Maybe someone said something that hurt my feelings. Maybe I was disappointed. And the choice to love, even when it hurts to serve and to do, um, those, that can be a hard command. But that's the command that Jesus gives us here. To love means we choose to not pick up offenses. It means we always serve. It means we always accept and build up. Well, in closing, I want to read you um, a, a passage written by a woman who, for me, has been one of my favorite examples when I think of this story of remaining, being able to do what is impossible because she allows God to work in her life. And it's the story of a woman named Corey Tenboom. She was um, a young woman, lived in Holland, and I think I have a picture, there she is. That was her as an older person. And her family hid people in her house, Jewish people, during the Second World War. They hid them behind the walls in their house. Corey, her sister, and her father had been arrested because of that, and they were put in concentration camps. I'll let Corey's story speak for itself. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and its crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath her skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him, the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. 
You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sin had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he ease her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives had a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If we do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will our Father in heaven forgive our trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the war, I had, been, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Remaining in the words of Christ, choosing to be obedient to the command of Christ, even though it was impossible, experiencing the love of Christ that came from being obedient. These are the things that Corey chose to do. How about each of us today? How are we doing on remaining in Christ? Do we see ourselves as being loved by God and being his friend? Are we obeying his commands? When God sees our lives, does he see much fruit on us? These are the things that Jesus is leaving us as a legacy. A promise to bear much fruit and a promise to have joy that overflows. But it's all because we are in intimate relationship with him as the vine. Let us pray. Jesus, you are the vine. And we come this morning submitting to be the branches. God, I know that there may be people here who have never thought about you as the source, as the one that could give them the ability to do what they know they can't do themselves. Jesus, in this moment, if that is them, would you help them to commit to be a branch to you, the vine? And God, for those of us who are your disciples, would you show us how to remain deeply 
connected to you, to have that intimate relationship with you? Would you help us to take those steps of obedience, even when it seems impossible, and to give us the ability to obey them and to find, like Corey Ten Boom did, just how real the love can be when we step out in obedience? I pray for this church um, and for the churches in Santa Barbara that we would grow to be the people that love each other, that we could obey God together collectively across the city. And now, Father, we come just to honor you and to thank you, to finish in prayer and praise to you because you are the true vine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.